Good morning, everybody. Good to have all of you here. It's nice to see so many faces from out of town. Hope that you'll enjoy relatively warm weather. I, I noticed there was a few of you from Florida here today, so this is this is actually warm. My printer printed three or four blank pages. <clears throat> Fortunately, page two is right behind all those. Uh, you don't want me to make this up. It would not be good. Uh, there's a race uh, down in Gunnison in the spring in May. It's called the Growler, and they have a, it's, it's down in uh, Hartman, so it's all this off-road, really rocky stuff. Most of you have probably been down there before. And, uh, so the Growler is a, a fundraiser for the, um, uh, the Gunnison Trails. And there's a 32-mile and a 64-mile. And I've done the 32 a couple of times. Um, I'm planning to do it again this year. And several people in here are going to do that. But we're doing it uh, this time to sponsor Young Life Kids at Camp. So Tyler's going to do it. I'm doing it. Let's see who else has signed up. John Beaver, Martin, Shelby, yeah. Phil, uh, Scott Cantrell. There's a couple other guys that are thinking about it. I think John Pulliam's thinking about it. I'll just put the pressure on him now. Um, <laughs> But each of us is going to raise a little over 700 bucks to uh, take a kid to camp. So that's what we're doing. Uh, I wanted to mention that to you. It's exciting. If anybody wants to be a part of that, uh, let me know. Last year in the Growler, I didn't have such a great time. About three miles to go. It was about 28 miles. I was like <laughs> totally bonking. I was totally done. I didn't, I didn't know what was going on. It was a beautiful day. I thought I was feeling good beforehand. And I got to the, the spot, and I thought, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I can keep going on the trail. I'm, I'm going to wreck and be lying here again. And uh, so I, I, got, I stopped. I got my phone out, and I looked at the map. And it, go, it goes, the last part goes over this, uh, the rattlesnake section. I don't know if any of y'all are familiar with that. But it's sort of technical. I'm thinking, man, if I'm really tired, I shouldn't, I shouldn't try that. So I made this really hard decision to stop. So I stopped, and I was just going to take my, I was where I could just ride down the road most of the way and skip all that stuff. And I get a text at the exact moment, like this moment. And I'm like, like oh, cool, Katie texted me. Where is she? She, yeah. she goes, Scott, my grandpa's coming to town. Do you have a walker he can borrow? <laughs> like, so uh, anyway... It was, it was amazing, um, and literally, I, I'll go ahead and say this, this, this happens to me occasionally, uh, and this is a different story than you heard before, but the exact same story, because a woman about my age rode by me, I'm standing there, nothing looks wrong, I'm not laying on the ground, she goes, hey, are you okay? <laughs> no. Um, anyway, hopefully this year will be better. I went, I just rode back. And uh, I do have, uh, no, I didn't have my walker anymore, so I couldn't give it to you. Uh, I did have one <laughs> so from a previous injury, but um, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> just hoping for better things. If you don't text me, Katie, this year. Uh, we're in a series now that we're calling Upstream, and this is Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the, the first one that we have a copy of. And, and Paul is saying to them, look, 
If you're going to follow Jesus, it's going to look different than your culture. And if you're going to follow Jesus, it's going to look, it's, it's going to be challenging. It's going to feel like you're going upstream. Everything you learned, everything the world taught you is going to come into challenge in your heart and your mind. Because following Jesus just looks different than what the world tells us. Uh, let me give a quick snapshot to those of you who weren't here last week <coughs> about what the town of Corinth was like. I'll be as brief as I can because I know some of you heard this uh, last week. It was really a well-known crossroads. It was a place where trade happened. Uh, it was on an isthmus, and it had ports on both sides of this isthmus. So there was traffic going with all these uh, containers and things going back and forth across this place. Uh, lots of wealth flowed through there, lots of ideas. It was a religious place. Um, it had been destroyed and rebuilt, and before it had been destroyed, it had a massive uh, uh, place of worship, a temple for uh, Aphrodite, which had a cult of prostitution associated with it. And when it was rebuilt, a lot of those things came with it. It was a religious place. They believed that there was something more for the most part, but they were both Greek and Roman and other coming into this trading place. So there was all kinds of uh, religious stuff going on, plus philosophical ideas and ways of life that were competing for the attention of the people. They loved sport. They loved to be entertained. I don't know if I mentioned it last week, they had a 10,000-seat amphitheater. It's pretty big, right? Uh, when you zoom out and you think about that culture, you see, and when you study, just read a little bit about Corinth, uh, they loved to be entertained. They loved the idea of being really smart. They were religious. They were looking for God. They loved luxury, and they're obsessed with sex. And so when I make that little list, and then I zoom out from our culture, and I think, what are the things that identify us as a culture? I came up with a pretty similar list. So I think that when Paul writes to us and to them, it should make sense. He spent 18 months there starting a church, 18 months in a really crazy place. And he planted the church, and then he left, and then he writes a letter back to them, and he says, hey, I've heard some things are not going so well, and I want to encourage you and teach you. And he says, you know what? You are believers. I know that you follow Jesus, but you've brought a lot of stuff in, and we need to talk about it. And so Paul gets pretty, pretty frank with them in explaining that life is going to look a little bit like they're going upstream. And I want to be sure I say, as we go into this, like a 12-week series, so this is week two, when we say that we're going upstream as believers, that might sound like I'm saying, or we're saying we're going upstream against our culture. I'm not suggesting that we're going against our culture. I want to bring our culture, our friends, all those ideas towards Christ. I'm not trying to give you a bunch of reasons how we're different and better than anybody else. That is the last thing that we should... Going upstream against our, this culture does not mean that we're against the people that we live with. So don't mistake me for saying that. But today, Paul's going to do something where he says, I, the first thing I told you last week, the first thing in this, Paul says, hey, if we're going to follow Jesus, we've got to do it in unity. This church, that church, we need to be in unity together. And that means subordinating ourselves to one another. That means a lot of humility. Unity is critical, number one in the book. The second thing he does is he comes around to this. He says, I want to give you a new paradigm for wisdom. Those people loved wisdom. They loved knowledge. 
They wanted to learn about what everything was and distill it into something that they could explain. And he says, you know what? I need to give you a new kind of wisdom, a new paradigm, a paradigm of wisdom that comes from God. And what it's going to tell you, church, the second thing, is that you have a different place to, des- to find your worth. Your worth is based in Jesus. Who you are is based in Jesus. And this is a new wisdom. This is a new thing for you to understand. Because before you placed your, your trust, your strength, your hope in something else. But it's Jesus and you can't forget it. That is where he is going with us. It's going to be contrary to what you've heard. It's contrary to what we have heard. But there's a truth about who we are in Jesus. And that's what we need, I think, to hear today. So three points I want to take you through. First one is this, the paradox. We are wired to be measured by winning, dominating, having power. That's how we know that we have come to a place of acceptance. But God wants something else. It's a paradox that the God of the universe would want something other than power for us. And then a principle. So a paradox and then a principle. Here's this principle that flows through the Bible when we're talking about the God of the universe. He is expressly connected with people who are humble. God has expressly connected with people who are humble. Humble enough to understand that we are in need. So there's a paradox and a principle and then price. The value of something is often measured by the price that's paid for it. And he's going to describe that to us a little bit at the end of this series of verses. So let's talk about the paradox for a moment. So to understand who we are in Christ as a church, as believers, if you are a believer in here, one of the first things we got to understand is the paradox of his wisdom in this. And here's kind of a modern way of saying it. Following Jesus is not going to be cool. It is not going to be cool. And you know, when I think about it, I'm like, God, why can't it be cool to follow Jesus? I mean, could you not have just made it cool? You could, I, I spent actually quite a bit of time thinking about that. Um, <clears throat> probably because I'm, ama- I'm amazingly uncool. But... Uh, <laughs> The wise of the world will consider a believer, a follower of Jesus, to be pathetic. Okay? Now, I didn't have to tell you that. Uh, a few verses earlier than we read, this is in verse 18, 1 Corinthians. For the word of the cross, knowledge of Jesus, is folly to those who are perishing. Folly. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of of God. Can you leave that up there for a second? A couple of things that we just have to see in this little place. There's two things that should come from this for us at least, and probably more if you're thinking about it. Uh, one is confidence and one is compassion. Uh, we can have confidence in Christ because despite what our neighbors, friends, the world, our culture thinks about what we believe in following Jesus, uh, We can have confidence in him. They will find us foolish, but what they find foolish is the cross of Christ. Not me. Confidence and compassion. We have to have deep and sincere compassion. It says, 
It's folly to those who are perishing. You can't read that and go, yeah, we're on top. No. We should have equal measure of compassion and concern for people who don't know him because what he's saying is these people are lost and need Jesus. Uh, the beautiful sacrifice of Jesus is seen as folly and as weakness. And here's the paradox. God is okay with that. Test that, you know, if you want to. Read some of your, your scripture. God is okay with the, with the cross of Christ being seen as folly. Uh, and here's something we got to know. Following Jesus is never about winning. It's not about being right. It's not about being better. It's always about humbly following him. You know, uh, it is easy to be pushed downstream by scorn of others, by the opinions of people. Uh, publicly, I, a lot of my friends don't publicly say things to me about my faith or my job or, you know, my friends or, you know, who believe in Jesus. But I know they do when I'm not around. I know they do. And that's okay. I kind of, when I'm with them, my friends that are pretty hardcore non-believers really know Christianity is way out there, not part of their deal. I know they've been talking about it. Because sometimes you can see. You guys know this? You're having coffee and they're like, yeah, you can see like, yeah, we talked about you in this. <laughs> um, when my daughter Sarah was a freshman here, it was her first year at CBCS. Uh, She's just getting to know people, you know, starting over like many of you guys have who've moved here. And there was a group of boys, of course, she wanted to be, you know, liked by everybody, but it was a group of, of popular guys in her classes. And, uh, and they would make fun of her every single class that they were in with her about her faith. And they didn't know anything about Christianity. They, they were just being boys, just making fun of her, you know, and then her making fun of her because of what I do and that kind of thing. And, of course, when she told me about that, I was going to take the high road and just break their legs. <laughs> uh, you know, um, compound fractures. It, I would stop there. <laughs> um, but she, uh, what she did was after it got old enough, um, she said, I don't want you to do anything, Dad. She talked to them and she said, guys, you know what? Just make one joke. And that'll be funny and we'll laugh. And then we'll go on. And they did. They just stopped. It was like she let them be themselves. I wanted to dominate them and destroy them, which is not part of understanding the paradox <laughs> of humility. <laughs> uh, they, they don't know. They didn't know any better. And they, and they stopped doing that. And eventually, over the course of years, they began to respect her for who she was and for her faith. Um, it doesn't always happen that way, but that's how this particular story happened. Um, humility was a better choice. Um, see, she knew something that I have, have to be forced to remember. Uh, God's not at the mercy of the opinions of men. You know? Uh, look at verse 20 and verse 25. 
This is what uh, we started with a moment ago. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? The lawyer. Where is the debater of the age? Where is the one who's making fun of you, who knows more than you, the one who belittles you? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? And then 25. The foolishness of God is wiser than any man, and the weakness of God is stronger than any man. God is far above all men, and we can rest in that. That's our truth. That's the truth of the paradox. Uh, God has, for some reason, chosen to honor the humble. And it's okay with him when Christ is belittled like that. So, we've got a paradox and a principle. This is the principle, which I just mentioned. God gives grace to the humble. Remember that passage? You've seen it before. God gives grace to the humble. There's another one in, uh, towards the end of Isaiah. And he says, um, this is the one who I will esteem. The one who trembles at my word and who is humble before me. This is a theme throughout the story of the scripture. Throughout the story of God's interaction with man. I mean, and it's something to meditate on. Why would the God of the universe, the creator of all, excuse me, all of these things, esteem the one who is humble? Uh, well, there's a reason, Paul says, that we should be humble when he's speaking to that church. And I think if he wrote it to us, he might say the same thing, but no offense, uh, because he is saying, he goes, friends, Basically, you're pretty plain. Look at it in uh, verse 26. He says, don't think too highly of yourselves because consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you are noble birth. We can easily interpret that to popular, wealthy, beautiful. All of those things are within. Not many of you had all the things going for you. But here's the beautiful thing. God chose what is foolish in the, in the world to shame the wise, and God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Now, if you're not okay with being foolish and weak before the God of the universe, I want to encourage you to get some time with God. Okay? Because that's what he's saying. Just so you know, guys, one of the reasons I'm bringing this up to you is that you didn't bring a lot to the table, Corinthians, but God chose you. And it's okay to be foolish and stuff because I'm the God of the universe. And I'm choosing you. <laughs> uh, another little quick bike racing thing. Uh, when I was younger, I was probably 35 or something. And if, in, in case you don't know this, and I'll remind you of this frequently, uh, if, you're, if you're 35 or 55, and I think or 75, as a man, you stopped maturing at about 14. Okay? So that's sort of an undergirding principle with this story. So I'm, a, I'm racing bikes on the road, and I'm, I have my best season ever, best race ever. It was a cr criterium, and so it was about an hour and a half, or hour and 15 minute race, and I waxed these dudes that I were so far beyond. I don't know what happened to me. I was not doping, but something happened where I felt really, really good. And uh, 
So there's a group of the Cat 1 guys, the top, top, one, top group, Cat 1 and 2. And I was an aspiring Cat 2, so I really wanted to get there. And, but they just ignored everybody who wasn't in their group. And I remember that night, we're all standing around talking, you know, the bigger group. And one of them comes over and says, hey, you want to go to dinner with us? I'm like, yeah. I do. <laughs> you know? So felt pretty good to be chosen, right? And I went to dinner with them. And we're sitting around the table. And the conversation of travel comes up. And they're just talking. And they talk about going to this country in Asia that I had been to doing mission work before. And they were like, yeah, we went there. And it got pretty rated R. Um, and uh, so I was like, okay. Um, and they actually said, well, what did you do over there? <laughs> and I told them, well, uh, you know, I'm trying to figure out how can I make this work. Uh, and I said, well, I'm a pastor, and I was over there doing some teaching and stuff. It was the most incredible social adjustment you've ever seen. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> because I was 14. I was ejected from the jocks table completely. I'm not kidding. It all changed. The mood changed. The way they looked at me changed. And it just, we finished. I left. I raced against them. We never talked. Those are road racers for you. But, <laughs> um, y'all, uh, there is a, uh, a common thing that they were thinking. For whatever reason, this new guy, when He's pathetic, right? How can you believe him? He's so dumb. So what I had to remember was who I was really chosen by, somebody else, right? Um, God esteems the humble. It's okay to be belittled and sent away and rejected, to be less. Because Jesus knows what that's like. See, our natural wisdom tells us to compare ourselves, and so we aim for those things. It's wise to measure ourselves against the talented and the beautiful and the successful, smart, rich, educated, powerful, and, and all of that. You know, these are the things that we want to measure against and have some level of success. We want what they have. But Paul says, Jesus is our wisdom. This is the new wisdom. Jesus is our wisdom, security, success, beauty, power, Wholeness. Um, when you know you're not right, when you know you're not perfect, you're exactly the person that you should be. Because God gives grace to the humble. Okay, that's the principle. Okay, briefly on the price. <laughs> Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you don't have value, that I don't have value. That wouldn't make any sense to say, according to the scripture. It'd be easy for you to take what I'm saying, say, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I'm, you know, I'm nothing, I'm nobody, you know, I, don't, I can't be successful, I can't try, I can't, no. That, that doesn't make sense with the scripture, with how God relates to us. The problem is, we have misidentified what's valuable about us. Okay, think about that with me for a second. You and I have misidentified what's valuable about us. We thought it was those things. Uh, achievement or genetics or good luck or good looks. But y'all, value is determined by the price someone is willing to pay for that thing. 
And the greatest price that can be paid is not money, but a life. So look at this in uh, verse 30. And because of him, that's because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. You have a new identity. You have a new value standard. Jesus, who became to us wisdom, the new wisdom from God. And here's, here's the content of that. Righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Now, this verse would be a great one to go home and just think about and talk to God about. I just want to look at one word at the end of it. Redemption. This is one of the things we know. Jesus is our redemption. In God's wisdom, he put us in Christ and redeemed us. Jesus exchanged himself for you and for me on a cross. When we could do nothing for ourselves, when everything we did was as a filthy rag before him, he exchanged his life for us. Now, if price equals value... I think that says something about us. What he says about us. And then what's cool is if you go back to the beginning of the, the chapter, the beginning of his letter, he says, hey, you're new in Christ. You got all this stuff to offer. You got all these gifts. You got all these great people. You got all this talent. He's going to talk about it through the whole, pa- the whole book. But the bottom line is that it comes from Jesus. So, I'm going to close. Let me ask if Steph and Maggie to come on up and uh, they're going to lead us in one more song. Um, so the new paradigm is at least something like this. It's not the wisdom of the world that tells us where we get our value. It's not the wisdom of competition and being better and dominating and someone having to lose. That's not what it's about. The new paradigm is that Jesus is our wisdom. He's the peace and hope and beauty and strength. And he has placed an unimaginable value on each one of us. And he's worthy of being followed upstream.